like for you to imagine that you are driving down the highway, cruising at about 95 speed limits, about, well, it's 70, and uh, you're just enjoying passing cars in that left lane, and then you see those red and blue lights flashing in your rearview mirror, and you pull over, and there's a polite police officer who comes up to your window and says, good afternoon, sir, may I see your license, please? And you say, yeah, whatever. And the policeman says, excuse me, what did you say? And you say, whatever. And uh, goes downhill from there. The policeman shows you his badge, reminding you that he is a duly appointed officer of the law and he is there to enforce the law and uh, he asks again for your license and then you just blow him off with a rude remark and that sets the officer off. He uh, orders the, well he orders you to get out of the car and you say, I don't think so. I kind of like it here. And that really gets the policeman riled up. So he reaches for his gun, sticks it right up your nostril, and says, okay, pal, out of the car, now. <laughs> he slaps the cuffs on, sticks you in the patrol car, and takes you to the jailhouse. And um, what we see here in this totally imaginary scenario we hope it's totally imaginary. Uh, when the policeman showed you his badge, that was a demonstration of authority. And when he stuck the revolver up your nostril and carted you off to jail, he was demonstrating power, the ability to back up that authority. So the words that Jesus speaks not only have authority, they have power. Let's read those words this morning. You'll find them on pages 860 and 861 in your pew Bible, if you'd like to follow with me. And uh, the text this morning, we're going to see something uh, happen where um, Jesus' authority is revealed along with his power. Beginning with Luke 4, um, verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he spoke, or he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and began to serve them. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. The people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For 
I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, also known as the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with, uh, with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Key word in this passage is the word authority. We see it in verses 32 and 36. And Jesus is making quite an impression on the people of Capernaum with the authorities by the way that he is preaching. You know, usually when the rabbis taught, they would frequently mention the men that they studied under and learned from, and this gave them a, a, a certain degree of authority. It was almost like a, a, a name-dropping competition. You know, the, the better-known teachers, the more authority that the rabbis who studied under them had. And, uh, you know, we do something like that. If you uh, graduated from an Ivy League school or studied under a renowned expert, you would have a pretty good case uh, for speaking with authority. I had a professor once who had his PhD from Oxford, and he was proud of that distinction, as he should be. His classes were always full. Everyone always wanted to, you know, hear this particular professor, um, in part because most of the students considered him to be more of an authority than the other professors because this one had his PhD from Oxford. Uh, he had an impressive resume and uh, commanded a lot of respect. Um, but, you know, if you don't have an impressive resume, uh, your teaching just wouldn't ga garner too much authority no matter how much you know. Well, you know, I don't have a very impressive resume, but, you know, neither did Jesus. He just kind of showed up, and he's going from one synagogue to the next and visiting rabbis. Uh, first, I should insert that he was a recognized rabbi, meaning that he had jumped through all of the hoops that were necessary and answered all the essential questions. And so he, he was certified as a, a, as a rabbi, recognized as a, a teacher. And so when he went to a synagogue, uh, he was given the opportunity to read the scripture and to comment upon it and answer questions about that later. That's where they did church in, in those days. But when it was time for him to talk about his credentials, who he studied under, he didn't really have a list of people that he had studied under. So it would seem that he really wouldn't have any authority at all. But when people heard him, it changed their minds. When Jesus appeared on the, the scene, um, it was clear uh, to the people who heard him uh, that he was a man who spoke with authority and not as the scribes. He had a totally different way of, of teaching than the scribes did. 
uh, the, the scribes, uh, you know, we read about the scribes and Pharisees and the New Testament. Uh, scribes uh, were more than just, you know, secretaries who wrote stuff down. They were scholars. Uh, they knew the scriptures uh, very well. Um, but they had a interpretation of scripture that was not exactly as God intended. When they read the, the scriptures, you know, that would be, you know, what we would refer to as the Old Testament. They would uh, specialize in the, the, the Torah or the, the books of the law. And they interpreted uh, God's law as a list of things that you better not do. And so emphasizing the, the list of things that uh, you must not do or the, the things that uh, you have to do, the, the law through their eyes became uh, more of a legalistic list of, of stuff that were categorized as, as do's and don'ts rather than the intention that God had for his word to reveal who God is as a holy God uh, to uh, reveal also that we ourselves are not holy and thus are in need of a savior. That's not what the scribes taught at all, but it is what Jesus taught. And we're going to see this unfold uh, later in the story as we get to it. So when we think about Jesus speaking with authority, we wonder, you know, did he have a deep, resonant voice, sort of like James Earl Jones? You know, I, I can't do that, but, um, you know, anybody who could speak like that, you would want to listen because his voice just sounds authoritative. Or was he so animated that when he spoke, you know, he didn't have a pulpit to pound, so he might have just pounded, you know, one fist into the other and say, I want you to get this point and just hammer on that over and over again. Or what was, uh, were his gestures uh, so animated that people couldn't keep their eyes off him? They, they, they couldn't resist hearing what he had to say. Uh, you know, we, we have no idea what Jesus' voice sounded like what his gestures might have looked like. Uh, so how do we know that he spoke with authority? Is there anything here in the text that helps us know for sure that Jesus spoke with authority? Yes, there is. And I want to present to you three exhibits. First of all, exhibit A. Exhibit A is the demon-possessed man. Uh, while Jesus is preaching, he is rudely interrupted by a demon who cries out with a rude remark. In uh, verse 34, he says, Ha! What have we, or what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. What a curious thing for a demon to say. He's saying Jesus is the Holy One of God, and yet he's also using this word of mocking and of derision. The word ha uh, would be, you know, I, I guess the cultural equivalent to, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, something that was uh, uh, rude, uh, not respectful. So uh, what is the demon doing? Why doesn't he say something that's uh, what we might consider to be uh, more demonic than to say something that sounds you know, more religious or more Christian and saying, I know who you are, you know, the Holy One of God. Well, we want everybody to recognize that, but here's what the demon is doing. He is wanting to draw the attention away from what Jesus is saying to what he, the demon, is saying through this man who is there? If you can get people to stop listening to Jesus and start, you know, turning uh, to the, the 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 man who is demon possessed, then people are going to be confused. Uh, people don't get confused when it's very clear what one person is saying on this hand, and very clear what another voice is saying on the other hand, and you can compare the two and contrast the two. Uh, the the demon wanted to muddy the waters a bit. And so Jesus tells him, 
uh, to be silent and to come out of the man that he was inhabiting, and he did. In verse uh, 36, we see that they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? Curious, isn't it, that that's how they respond? What is this word when he says, be, be silent and come out of him? And the demon obeys uh, this rebellious demon who along with Lucifer and all the other uh, you know, demons who rebelled against God is now obeying. See, Jesus has authority over him. He won't let him speak. So the demon can't, even though he might want to. And, uh, of course, all the people are amazed. They go on to say, for with authority and a power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. So everybody knew that Jesus spoke with authority because the demon obeyed him. Now, before we go to Exhibit B, I think it might be good to address the question about Jesus and the demon that's bound to come up. The demon was speaking the truth. So why wouldn't Jesus allow the demon to testify about him? When the demon says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, he's making a statement of fact, a statement of truth, but he is not making a statement of faith. The demon has not converted, even though he says theologically correct stuff. And Jesus does not want to be associated with uh, the demonic side in any way. He doesn't want to confuse people thinking that uh, they're uh, on the same side here, uh, which would allow uh, for a, a lot of uh, confusion. Uh, demons are not on Jesus' side. No one hates Jesus more than the demons. And uh, nothing recognizes the holy more clearly than the unholy. No one recognizes the intrusion of heaven more than those who inhabit hell. So when Jesus appeared, the demons trembled and they feared and they protested and they resisted. But nothing could quench the fire or their fierce hatred of him. It's a little wonder then that Jesus did not want demons to be his evangelists. Okay, now let's go to Exhibit B, uh, which are the physical healings. We'll find uh, the description of this in uh, verse 38. He arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, this is Peter. Uh, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And uh, he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Okay, Peter's mother-in-law was sick with a fever. This was a serious matter. You know, when we have a fever, uh, you, you take a couple of Tylenol, and uh, you know, maybe put a cold washcloth on, on your head to uh, reduce the fever. Uh, but if the fever persists, persists you, know, you call the doctor, you go to the emergency room, um, and in those days, uh, they really didn't have hospitals. Physicians were uh, not as plentiful as they are in our day. So uh, someone has a high fever and it doesn't go away, um, you know, you're, you're in trouble. So what do you do? I'm sure they would have used cool water. They didn't have Tylenol or anything like that. Uh, but they did what they could to reduce the fever. However, you didn't see anybody standing around there rebuking the fever. So what good would that do? And yet that's exactly what Jesus does. He, he goes up to the woman and instead of just placing his hand upon her and say, be healed or whatever he might have said uh, or, or, or did, he rebukes the fever. Now why would he do that? Well, he wants people to know that his words have authority that he can speak to a fever, and the fever will obey him. And this is exactly what happens. Now, we uh, realize that when you have a fever, it makes you sick, it drains you of energy, it 
just kind of zaps you with this uh, worn out feeling. So it, it takes time to get your strength back after you've uh, you know, duked it out with a fever for uh, some time. But that's not what happens with Peter's mother-in-law. It says immediately she rose and began to serve them. So this is uh, pretty amazing. Uh, Luke goes on to say in the next verse that uh, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Okay, people have seen what Jesus did with Peter's mother-in-law. He rebukes the fever. Immediately she gets up and she's serving people. And so as the word gets out, they start bringing all the other sick people to Jesus. And if he could heal a woman of the fever just by speaking to the fever, uh, he should be able to heal anyone else who is sick. And you know, Luke tells us that he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Now why would he do that? Why wouldn't he just say, okay, uh, everybody who here who's here for healing, could I see your hands? Okay, I want you all to come over this way. Uh, those of you who are with him, help, help them get over here. And uh, then he might, you know, maybe wave his hand and say something, uh, healing words or whatever. Said, you know, the, the Lord bless you all with healing and restoration and health and, and, and so forth. And uh, everybody would have been healed and, and gone home. But that's not what Jesus did. It says he went and laid his hands on every one of them. There's something about personal touch that communicates care. So Jesus is saying to the sick, I care about you. I care that you're sick. I'm going to restore health to you. And he does so in, in a way uh, that is communicated not only by his words, but also by his touch. So what do you think that did for Jesus' reputation? Well, here's a man who speaks with authority. Not only does he speak with authority, but his power backs it up. And not only does he speak with authority and with power, he does it with compassion. unlike anyone had ever seen before. And so this uh, leads, to, leads us to a point to, uh, I want to raise this question. Um, why would Jesus do miracles? I mean, why would he cast out a demon? Why not just tell the man or, or tell the you know, some of the, the, the leaders in the synagogue, would someone escort this man outside? He's interrupting my sermon. Uh, why not just quietly, you know, get him out of the house? And um, as far as Peter's mother-in-law and the others who came to him for healing, and instead of, you know, healing them, why, why, why not just say, um, here's the word of the Lord for you today and, and, and start teaching? Well, he wanted to establish with the people that he was indeed a man of authority and uh, a man of great power and a man of compassion. But he wants them to know why he speaks with authority and with power and with compassion. So he wants people to know who he is. And once they know who he is, they will want to know what he has to say. So uh, remember in the Old Testament, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses in a burning bush and, uh, and it was not consumed and Moses approaches the bush and he has a conversation with the Lord and the Lord tells Moses he wants him to go to Pharaoh and uh, secure permission for his people to go to the mountain where they may worship the Lord. And Moses is skeptical that Pharaoh is going to listen to him. And so the uh, Lord says to Moses, what's that you got in your hand? Uh, it, well, a, a staff. We'll throw it down. And throw, so he throws it down. It becomes a snake. And then the Lord says, pick it up by its tail. Now, I would never pick up a snake, no matter what, uh, live or dead. 
not with my hand. And my family's over here not in agreement. Uh, I do not like snakes. And uh, so I've got to respect Moses when the Lord tells him to reach down and pick up the snake by its tail. And when he does, it becomes a staff again. Um, Moses has to be astounded. And uh, the Lord's not through. He says, all right, take your hand and stick it in, in your cloak. And so he does. And now pull it out. And so he does. And uh, behold, it's leprous. Uh, leprous is terrible, terrible disease. And, you know, it gets Moses' attention. So you know, God says, all right, stick your hand back in your cloak again. And so he does. And he pulls it out. And it has been restored. He, he has been healed. So what is God doing here? He is establishing with Moses that he has all the power and the authority that he needs and he is going to transfer this power and this authority to Moses so that Pharaoh will know who is communicating with him. That it's not just a mere man, but it is God Almighty who is working through Moses. Pharaoh was a slow learner. As you may remember the story, it took ten plagues. Uh, for him to get the message and then after the last one uh, he said okay go leave and then he changed his mind and tried to capture all the Israelites and bring them back to Egypt but uh, they got caught there in the Red Sea and uh, that's a great story but speaking of sea it leads us to exhibit C which is fish okay so here, here are the exhibits uh, that Luke is presenting to us, uh, you know, the demon, uh, rebuking the fever, and now the fish. These are curious exhibits, aren't they? You know, to present to readers. He's presenting uh, this whole book to most excellent Theophilus uh, to, to give an account of, of Jesus' life. And he's wanted to establish that Jesus is indeed uh, the, 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 the Holy One of God. Um, and, and the first uh, couple of verses of chapter 5, uh, we see the crowd pressing in on Jesus, and uh, they wanted to hear the word of God as he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, also known as the Sea of Galilee, and uh, did you get this to work? Okay, he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Well, just to get the context of what's going on here, the news of Jesus had spread throughout the region. Uh, they had heard, and many of them had seen what Jesus could do. Now they want to hear what he has to say. And so Jesus wants them to hear, and so uh, he comes up to Simon, who is also known as Peter, and uh, says, I'd like to use your boat um, as a not only a pulpit, but also as a makeshift uh, public address system. You know, in the marvels of technology now, we have, uh, you know, amplifiers that we can use to make uh, the speaker's voice more easily heard. And uh, those days, they didn't have electronics, uh, but, you know, your voice is going to travel over water uh, a whole lot um, better than it does over land. I remember many years ago we had a men's retreat. Uh, some of the men from our church went to uh, uh, a, a state park where there was a nice lake and there were cliffs, you know, bluffs overlooking the lake. And uh, after supper we had this time of, uh, you know, campfire there and uh, you know, singing songs. And uh, there were fishermen on the lake and after we'd finished singing one song, uh, we could hear one of the fishermen say, sing Amazing Grace. And so we sang Amazing Grace. Then we had a conversation with this fisherman who was on the boat way out yonder. And it was just as clear as it was if we were right here in this room. So it's what Jesus is doing. Everybody can hear him because they're there by the water. And uh, as a re result of uh, Jesus uh, using Peter's boat, he uh, wants to express his gratitude for letting him use his boat. Now, I, I should insert here that, that, that Jesus and, and Peter, known as Simon at, at this time, already knew each other. 
uh, you know, Jesus was in uh, you know, Simon Peter's home. He heals his mother-in-law. Uh, he's been with Jesus for about a year uh, at this time. So he's got a good relationship with, with Jesus at, at this point. But if we get to uh, you know, verse 4 or verse 3, uh, I've already done that. So let's get to verse 4. Uh, when, when he finished speaking, he tells Peter, uh, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. This is a, a strange request. Uh, it comes at a bad time. See, what had been going on here is that uh, Peter and James and John and the others who were with them had fished all night. This was the way you wanted to catch fish with a net. And uh, they had been at it all night long. They hadn't caught a single fish. And so now they're tired. They're frustrated. Now they got the, the work of cleaning the nets to do. And uh, Jesus tells them to go out into the deep and um, you'll have a catch. Well, he doesn't say that uh, yet. Uh, yeah, he did. It was right there. I stand corrected. Now, Peter and the other fishermen with him were professionals. They fished for a living. It wasn't like you had a rod and a reel and you toss it out there and you do it for sport. You know, they were doing this for commerce, for, for money. So they used these big heavy rope nets. And they knew where the fish were. They knew the best time to catch the fish. Uh, fish were closer to shore uh, where there's a, a better supply of food. and. It's better to fish at night so the fish can't see the nets. <laughs> I assume the fish can see the nets. But nevertheless, this was the best time to fish. And, and, and Jesus is saying, go out into the deep where everybody knows fish aren't in the deep, uh, especially this time of day. Uh, fish are, ju are just not there. And they're professional fishermen. And Jesus is a carpenter turned rabbi. Why does he know about fishing? But Peter says, uh, Lord, uh, our master, we toiled all night and took nothing, and uh, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Okay, even though it didn't seem to make sense, uh, Peter does it anyway because Jesus told him to do that. Remember, Jesus speaks with what? <laughs> Authority, yeah. And Peter recognizes that. Even if Jesus asked him to do something that seems totally insane. I read a story recently about uh, an incident during the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. Uh, there was a battalion of American soldiers uh, who uh, were in a French village. And uh, there was a house in that village uh, that had been captured by the Germans. And so the commanding officer spoke to the lieutenant who had just arrived from uh, training from the states and really didn't have any combat experience to speak of. He said, uh, the commanding officer said to his lieutenant, I want you to go and uh, take that house. And so uh, standard protocol would have been, I guess, a grenade or two that you would lob at the house. And uh, then you go in with guns blazing. But the lieutenant didn't do that. What he did instead was he walked up to the house, you know, knocked on the door, uh, the German sergeant comes out. Uh, he's wearing a T-shirt with his uh, pants and suspenders on. And so the um, American lieutenant says to him, um, we want you to surrender. And so the German sergeant said, okay. And then he calls out in German to uh, the, the soldiers who were manning a machine gun nest on the other side of the house, uh, you know, hidden down in the weeds and tells them to come out, uh, they need to surrender, and uh, so they do. Um, it's a word of authority. Don't know what was backing it up, but doesn't really matter because the German sergeant believed that the American lieutenant was speaking with, with such authority that he 
obeyed. Well, I want to say something here. You know, sometimes when uh, the Lord asks his people to do something, if it seems logical, rational, you know, makes sense, um, you know, why wouldn't you do that? Uh, sometimes you see that, you know, God asks you to do something strange or, or weird and, you know, sort of like putting out in the deep in the middle of the day to, to catch fish when everybody knows you, you can't do that. But, you know, we live in a day and age where we don't think, okay, if it sounds logical, if it sounds reasonable, uh, then that must be the Lord. Uh, today, we think, oh, that sounds ridiculous, that sounds weird, that sounds outlandish. That must be the Lord. Um, most of the time when God tells us to do something, it's something that's logical and makes sense. Uh, but sometimes he does ask his people to do something that uh, just seems to contradict sound reasoning. I want to point out something here that I think is really is fascinating to me. That the Lord has such authority, you know, he didn't stand there in the boat or on the shore and say something to the fish. Uh, not so much for the fish's benefit, but for the benefit of those who are around him and tell them to swim into the nets. But he commanded them with authority nonetheless. And what's amazing to me is that the fish do not hesitate. Peter hesitates. He said, Lord, we fished all night. We didn't catch anything. He's hesitant to put down the nets again. But the fish are not hesitant to swim into them. What kind of authority would a man have to have in order to communicate with two boatloads full of fish to swim into nets at a time when everybody knows <laughs> there are no fish in the lake when you drop a net down, not this time of day. But it happened. Now, how do you think Peter would have responded? You know, jumping up and down. Woohoo, look what we've got here. <laughs> you know, a, a boatload of fish and have to call the other boat over. We, we've got more fish than we can handle. You know, they are waist deep in fish. The, the, the scriptures tell us that uh, the, the boats were so full of fish that the, the, the boats began to sink. I mean, they were uh, just about to go under. They, they had so many fish there. Uh, so was Peter just full of gratitude to go up to Jesus and say thank you, thank you, thank you we are so grateful for what you've done for us uh, did he maybe invite Jesus over to his house later that evening for a fish fry I mean there will be plenty we can invite everybody to come or maybe he would have gone up to Jesus and said uh, Jesus um, have, have, have I got a deal for you how about if you come down here every day about, you know, whenever you like, and uh, you, you do every day what you did today, and uh, you, you fill up our boats, and uh, we'll have a partnership, we'll split it 50-50. Okay, 90-10. Uh, we'll give you 90%, we'll, we'll keep 10. Uh, would we see Peter doing anything like that? Well, absolutely not. Certainly we would expect that Peter felt excited and grateful, but uh, Luke tells us that Peter's response was really rather surprising. Let's, uh, we read it once, let's uh, review it again as we uh, get past what we've already talked about. In verse eight, Simon Peter saw it, that is the boat full of fish, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What a thing to say. Please leave. Why does Peter ask Jesus to leave? Peter is afraid. He's afraid because he realized that he is a sinful man, 
in the presence of a holy God. This is something significant here. Peter now knows who Jesus is. He's not just a prophet sent from God, sort of like John the Baptist. He's in a totally different category from anybody who's ever set foot on the earth. He is God in the flesh. And how does he know he's God in the flesh? Because Jesus talked to the fish and the fish obeyed. Is that not fantastic or what? But you know something? We seem to have lost our sense of the holiness of God. And today's culture, we like to think of Jesus as, you know, our homeboy. He's our buddy, our friend, somebody we want to pal around with or maybe hire as our life coach. We just seem to have lost that sense of the holiness of God. You know why? church isn't overflowing with people we're kind of thin today I know it's a holiday weekend but you know generally why churches are not filled with people today well Jesus is not here in person um, so of course there's that but I think a lot of it has to do with what Peter experienced when you're in the presence of God and you don't know God as Lord and Savior, it makes you really uncomfortable. And so you don't want to draw close to God. You want to be as far away from him as you can be. <laughs> Years ago, uh, I was a freshman, maybe a sophomore in college. And so uh, my family was uh, driving west to where um, my mom's family uh, lived at, at the time where they were from in western North Carolina and I was in college in Knoxville, Tennessee so I thought well I'll just drive over from Knoxville and uh, get to see everybody this way and uh, us family visits were always enjoyable so uh, there were some family members, you know, about my age, there were four of us, and so we went for a ride, and I didn't know what we were going to do. I mean, it's a small town, it's, uh, you know, Saturday, it's light, I mean, it's dark. Uh, we go to some deserted place I'd never seen before in all my years of, um, you know, visiting up there. And um, then some guy comes to the window and uh, starts to... You know, make a deal. And uh, then it dawns on me, okay, this is why we're in a remote place where nobody can see us. Uh, uh, there, there's a drug deal that's going to take place here. And so as the exchange is about to be made, the, the guy dealing the drugs looks at me and said, you're not a preacher or anything, are you? Now, why did he say that? Uh, I would have understood if he had said, you're not a dark are you you're not an undercover officer of the law or anything are you he said you're not a preacher are you he said well as a matter of fact so I reached into my billfold and pulled out my Johnson Bible College student identification card and uh, showed it to him and the guy absolutely freaked out he got out of there as though he were a fox with his tail on fire I had never seen anybody run like that uh, to his car and take off and had these drugs with him. And my relatives sitting there in the car, mouths agape, uh, deer in the headlights look, and I'm having the time of my life. <laughs> you know what's amazing? It's, you, you learn some things about God in situations like this that people really are very uncomfortable with the presence of God if they're still sinners, not having been redeemed. It's right to feel uncomfortable in the presence of God if you are not redeemed. But now Peter knows who 
Jesus is. In verse 5, uh, there's a verse here. I, I, want, I want us to see this contrast. Um, verse 5, Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. The term master uh, is a term of respect. You would use that to uh, address a teacher. Um, but in the next verse, uh, verse 8, after all of the fish have landed there in, in the boat, uh, Peter says, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see the contrast in the terms of address. And Jesus to Peter is more than just a teacher now. He is the Lord. He is God in the flesh. It's amazing. All right. You know, for some of you, your understanding of who Jesus is is really not too far from where the demon in our story was. The demon could say that Jesus is the Holy One of God as a matter of fact, but not as a matter of faith. It takes more than knowing who Jesus is to be saved from your sin. You know, James, who is Jesus' half-brother, in his book said, uh, you believe in God? You do well, good for you. The demons also tremble, though they believe. So what you believe about Jesus will show up in your life one way or the other. You can believe Jesus is the Holy One of God and still not want anything to do with him. You wanna keep the Lord at a safe distance where you can manage him without a whole lot of difficulty. Or you can believe that Jesus is the Holy One of God and realize what a great treasure he is. So look at Peter here, standing in this boat, waist deep in fish, two boats full of fish. It represents the most successful day of his career. And Jesus invites him to come and follow him and say, don't be afraid, Peter, for now on you will be catching men. So Peter looks at this treasure there in the boats. He's, he could be rich. And he considers this invitation of Jesus. This time he does not hesitate. He leaves the fish there and he goes to follow Jesus. Now Peter's experience is similar to something that happened with Isaiah the prophet. In the year that King Isaiah died, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord, and he describes the holiness and the majesty of the Lord. And then in verse 5, he says of Isaiah 6, I think I've got it here, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes has seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Does this not sound like the same kind of experience that Peter had when he saw Jesus there with all of those fish? Then uh, the next uh, part of the passage in Isaiah 6, uh, the Lord is saying to Isaiah, um, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, I will go. And so the Lord tells him to go and to preach to this people. And you are not going to be successful in, the ter in terms of um, you know, having people respond to your message. But I want you to go and preach to them anyway. And Isaiah says, how long? Well, un until there are no more people left to preach to, essentially is what he is saying. But Jesus is saying something different to Peter. He's saying, follow me, you will catch men. He is indicating that there will be success in this area. So go cast your nets, Jesus is saying to Peter. People are waiting to hear the good news, the good news of the gospel. They will listen to you, unlike it was with Isaiah they will listen to you. I will draw them into the nets, but you need to cast your nets 
and pull them up. All right, how do we respond to what we heard this morning? Should the emphasis be something like this? That Jesus called Peter to be an evangelist. The Lord calls all of us to be evangelists now. Get out there and tell people about Jesus. Well, that would be secondary. Something else has to happen first. We need to respond to this question. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the Holy One of God. Everybody knows that or ought to know that. But when you say Jesus is the Holy One of God, do you say it as a matter of fact or as a matter of faith? Either way, what you truly believe about Jesus is going to show up in your life. Either you will put as much distance between yourself and the Lord as you can, or you will draw as close to Jesus as you possibly can and follow him for the rest of your life. This is what it means to be a Christian. Anyone here want to be a, become a Christian? We'll talk about it. But for now, let us pray. Gracious Lord, as we consider this story of you coming to earth and demonstrating your power and authority over the demonic, over a fever and over fish, it seems like an odd combination of things to demonstrate authority over, but you did it in such a convincing way that we can only come away and in awe and in wonder of who you are. We don't have things like this happening uh, before our eyes, and yet we have the account of how these things happen. And in a sense, we have something that's more sure, that we have your inspired word. We know that you are speaking to us through your word. So we pray that we will come to know you as you truly are, as the Holy One of Israel, as God in the flesh. And that we also will be in awe of you for who you are and what you have done and what you continue to do through those who answer your call to come and follow me. Through Christ our Lord we pray.